millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and this is the very first episode of Chattanooga. And today we have with us that sex god, the man of, of mystery, Josh Levine. Hello, Josh. Good Hello, to see you. Hello, Peter. And I have also with me, in the same room, but separated by six foot, uh, Gary Bain. Hi, Gary. How are you? Hello, Pete. I thought it was Josh Levine. It is Josh Levine. (laughs) (laughs) Now, normally, Josh, we do this naked because we find that that gets our creative juices flowing, don't we, Pete? It does. Uh, But we thought that um, we'd ease you in gently, and that's why we're wearing... uh, Two tablecloths and a handkerchief. Fine. I mean, you, you both look wonderful. I've worn clothes, knowing the way you work, I've worn clothes that remove very easily. So I'll just take a quick tug from either of you. <laughs> Something like right, that. Right, that's the tone. <laughs> now, uh, so let, let's talk a bit about you. Uh, we, we won't reveal your date of birth because I don't know it. 9th, uh, of April, <laughs> 9th of April, 1970. I have nothing to hide. Oh, he's so young. Young. Young and gorgeous. Now, you're, you're born in the Bahamas, aren't you? That, yes, that's, that's right. That's a bit yes. about that. Well, that's where my father was working, um, and he had answered an ad um, in the paper quite a lot of years before for someone to go out there and work. He was a Londoner, um, and he'd come from a, a family, born in the East End, lived in Tottenham, answered this ad, gone out to work there. So I ended up being born in this incredibly sort of exotic place, out there, he met my mother, who was an American. Was this after your birth? <laughs> it was before my birth, but let's not do the maths. All right. And Ooh. and he met. They met out there uh, at a at actually a, at a Passover dinner, uh, and they uh, got together there. And they then, after I was about two years, I was two years old. They came back to England. So my mother, the American, came back to live in England with my father, who was English. Then they divorced and he went back out to the Bahamas and my American mother stayed in England. So we were a very mixed up, confused family. Normal family, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Is Bahamas very much like Tottenham? I live in Tottenham. It, it's almost exactly the same. Oh, okay. I, mean, I don't it, need to leave Tottenham. In. It's I mean, more it's, sunny, I believe. It's colder, but apart from oh, that. God. But it's, no, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's a very, it was a very strange place. And I got the feeling that from the things my father said that in the 60s, it was quite... It was quite an open place. Like people came from all over the world and could sort of reinvent themselves there. So, you know, whatever their background was, 
kind of didn't matter because everyone met on this. So people, so you'd have Americans, Europeans, all sorts of people who met on this kind of level playing field. And I was just funny enough reading a story about the, the Beatles going out there to film help for tax reasons. And, 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 you know, they sort of went out and, and it was for a period in the sixties, sort of this incredibly cool place. Thunderball was yeah. filmed there. And, um, you know, I, I uh, missed all that. <laughs> now, well, where'd you go to school then? In- so I went to school in London. Uh, so I went to... One of our nation's great public schools. Well, I went to... God, blind, we're going into detail. We got half an hour. We could- <laughs> I went to, first of all, school that was basically 98% Jewish. Uh, and so it was, it had all Jews and one Sikh boy and one Christian boy. Um but the so I went from there and I went from there to uh yes, I went to uh Westminster School in Ah uh, Did you go to Westminster School, Gary? I used to walk past it because I worked in Blackfriars. <laughs> Gary, I remember you there, don't even pretend. <laughs> now uh you, 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 you do law, don't you, at university? I did law at university and I qualified as a uh criminal lawyer, criminal barrister. Um and I did that for a while. And actually quite, you know, it's very interesting being a criminal barrister. You, you, uh, I, I, I was fairly good. Um, and I was a good speech maker. And, you know, I, it was a really interesting. I remember my first ever trial, um, Crown Court trial, representing somebody who was up for assault. And, uh, it basically, I, I got him off by questioning, cross-examining a witness and, in that my very first trial, I felt actually the wrong result. I thought, you know, I, I had cross-examined quite well and I got this guy off when, you know, I sort of suspected. I didn't know, you never know. Um, so it was always a very, and, and then another one, I remember very shortly afterwards, I did a, a trial in the magistrates where someone I was sure was innocent and he went down because I was quite sure that, that evidence had been planted, but there was absolutely no way that I could, demonstrate this so you know from I it was it was a very interesting it was kind of dropped I was kind of dropped in and I found it very interesting and you know in a in a parallel world I'm still doing it now well I believe you know after that first case you celebrated a bit by uh in an unusual manner for a barrister how exactly yeah, did you celebrate that, uh, found that great victory well, I, I don't that know, it's guilty that, swine is that unusual <laughs> I went to uh actually that, that was my first uh, magistrates court trials at Marlborough Street Mag- Magistrates Court, which I think is now a hotel. And I went down into Soho and I had a tattoo. Uh, where, whereabouts was the tattoo? Uh, I know, Gary, you're very interested in this. Whereabouts is Soho? I was going to say, it's, it's, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it was Greek Street. The tattoo is, you're not going to see that one because it's down here. Oh, on the uh, right. The witness but, uh, is the... patting his right thigh. Right. Oh, no, well, it's your sort buttock. Of, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's sort of thigh stroke buttock. It's the, ju- it's, it's the junction. Um, but, but I've had one more recently. And what is it? That was just, I picked one off the wall. I mean, that, you know, I, I, it was, he had a, a chart on the wall. And so I, I just picked so something. So what is it? Come on, or, Garrett. Okay. Go on, let's see, let's, let's compare. Chart off the wall. Yeah, what was it? So, so it's a one? swallow with mum and dad. What, My mum left when I was four, but we couldn't fit anything else in there. <laughs> oh, God. Pete, oh. can you show, show us what you have? Sure, sure, I haven't mate. got any tats. I'm Is that afraid. true? Yes. Really? Not even from your time in the Navy? No. <laughs> Those happy days as a matter of 
No, for my time as a punk band, you mean? No. Oh never. yes, of course. So what? Uh, what exactly? Okay, is so it? so that one there is just it's like a Celtic, you know, it's sort of harmless oh, Celtic. God, design. that's Celtic. It's nonsense. like something off an Enya album. I think less. But of the you. one, but the one that I do, I'm very proud of, which you can see now, is this one. I do, well, That's what my daughter says. It's a barcode. She says it's a bone. It's a barcode. Exactly. If you want to read it, <laughs> you'll, you'll get something off Amazon if you put it in. This is actually. Uh, a peg because my daughter is Peggy so I had this done three and a half don't shake your head this is a beautiful moment you want some music over this oh and that one is that's my son James oh. is he the half-witted one no he's, one he's the other one sorry can you, you can say that can you yes. the half-witted one Wait, John's <laughs> been mentioned on many occasions does he have right to reply or is that <laughs> <laughs> he replies sir well he does now he's named him <laughs> Anyway, so that's a peg, and that's Peggy, and that I'm very, very pleased with that. In fact, you know, I'm a, I'm a canvas. I'm a work in progress. So, if there's anything you people write in with your requests, put them crayons away. <laughs> yeah, we're going to colour you in later. Yeah. <laughs> so um, now um, you, you 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 you're doing the law, but you're also appearing in amateur theatricals, uh, and so, this yeah. leads to a change. To t- take us through that. That's okay. Quite- so I was doing doing okay at the bar and um but every year i was very very keen on on acting um and every year i was taking plays to the end of the festival and then i thought i oh, was so you were successful be- before you went I was successful but i mean i was you know i was doing some interesting things and uh and i decided to uh, try to apply to drama school just to see if i was good enough to get in um and i wasn't intending to go and i applied and then I did get in to do a one-year course, which was much you know, shorter and cheaper. And I, I, I still wasn't intending to go, but as a barrister, you go to these, you know, you, you spend your Friday nights in these bars around the temple. That's and terrible. And every, every, you know, all the barristers had their stories. They were all frustrated something or other. They, you know, I used to, I used to play the guitar. I used to, everyone used to do something which they, which is what they wanted to talk about as soon as they, they'd had a drink. And I, I got so used to hearing all these frustrated people. It was almost like the bar was somewhere where people went when they couldn't quite do something else. I don't think it's true, but I mean, you know, I don't want to get in trouble over saying that, but I mean, you know, there were a lot of frustrated people, undoubtedly. And I just thought, well, hang on, you know, you're still young and, you know, you, you've got a chance here. Why not see if you can do it? So I did. And I went off and, and again, I, so I did, did that year and then I got quite a bit of work, did quite well, you know, didn't set the world alight, but got, you know, some interesting things, plays in the West End and for money, you know, ads that were paying quite, I mean, you know, it, People make Could you uh, tell us any of the ads you were in that Gary might have seen? <laughs> uh, I think I did. God, I haven't talked about this for years and years. I did the Sunday Times. I did. Oh, I did IBM. Of Gary saying that. IBM. I did a. I was flown out to Italy to do an ad for IBM. It was all very odd, very weird. But I did. I did some good plays in London. Um, and but at the same time, to make extra money, I was writing, and my passion had always been history through my father, who was one of these sort of children of the Second World War. You know, he was too young to to fight, but was completely obsessed. It, it had been the formative experience of his life, um, you know, living through the Blitz and living through the war. And and my uncle had flown Wellingtons. And, you know, so, so it was very much... And that had been... And my, through my father, I became 
quite obsessive. And so I, at the same time as I was acting, I was also writing. So I was writing plays. I had a play put on. I had a... Was that cr- Crash? Was yes, it? that was Crash. And I had a radio play on Radio 4. And I'd done... And I was researching for a couple of historians. So one was Sir Martin Gilbert. But I didn't do much for Martin Gilbert. I just... Just a bit. But I did a lot for Max Arthur. Oh, Max. Yeah. Now, that's where I met you. That's right. So uh, you would have met me before I'd ever written a book, I imagine. You would have probably met me when I was still... I remember you being a researcher for Max on, on his, when he was writing Forgotten Voices of the Great War. That's right. Which was a, a huge and fantastic success. God, it was a tidal wave, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, a tidal wave. So I always used to say that uh, for every one book... Uh, he sold sort of every sorry every every hundred books he sold I sold one and that was still helpful <laughs> but uh, Max was a character wasn't he uh, funnily enough he, he died relatively recently uh, which was which was sad uh, I, I wanted to talk a bit about Max you've met Max as well haven't you I met him once uh, I met him at one of your book launches he was a, a really nice man uh, and I did say to my wife that evening it was like being out with my my library. There were obvious exceptions because I know that both uh, Josh and yourself were there. And clearly, I haven't got any of your books, only the ones you've given me. <laughs> Can I just take you back to acting for a moment? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hello. Do, do you think that the skill set required for an actor is similar to those required for a barrister? I think the skill set for an actor and a barrister and a history writer are similar, in, certainly in the sense of what I do. It's all storytelling. It's about story. It's, it's very, you know, you can absolutely boil it down to that. Yeah. It's, you know, if you're presenting a case, you're trying to tell the story to the jury or to, you know, whoever it is you're, you're speaking to. If you're on stage, you're talking to the audience. You're trying to tell the story to the audience. And if you're writing or, for that matter, podcasting or, um, you know, making a program on radio or television, um, you're again. You're 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 communicating. You're 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 telling a story. It's it comes down to stories. And when it's why I love writing the books I write. You know because because it's all about getting across stories to people. That's the bottom line always. And and if you can communicate successfully, you've done your job. And if you haven't communicated, it's why you know some people are brilliant historians. But they you know if they can't communicate that, then you've got a problem. Yeah, and there is a similarity with Pete, isn't there? Because some of your books are criminal. <laughs> See, I don't feel I've earned the right. I could join in at this point. <laughs> no, Vince. In fact, I'm very tempted, but I, <laughs> I don't feel... Also, feel I'm, free I'm in, to join in. I'm in your sitting room, so... Also. No, no, you're allowed to be as rude as you like to be. It's, uh, and there are some interesting bars, aren't there, around the, the Royal Courts of Justice? Oh, yeah. The... Uh, uh, the lawyers have access to their own club as well round there. There's a lot of play that you know the the, the 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 some of them are very similar you know they're that very sort of old you know they they give the impression they've been there since you know the early 12th century and actually a lot of them haven't really they you know they're just sort of they're, they're the legal equivalent of Irish theme pubs but some of them have been there for for a long time and you do get I mean I can remember I remember you know what a, a regular in there in one of them place I remember called Benjamin Stillingfleets, whoever he was, was uh, George Carmen. You, remember, you know George Carmen QC? And I can once remember, he's, uh, this is, would be slanderous, but he's, he's passed on. But I can remember him being so drunk that he couldn't... He, no, he's a lawyer. He, he couldn't get his coins into the, the cigarette machine. And, you know, he just fumbled and were on the floor. And he was like, oh, help me to get my... You know, it was, it was that sort of a place. And it was... 
and and like I say, a lot of these a lot of these barristers, you know, they would they had other careers that they you know they, they 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 when they were drunk they talked about as though they'd like to have chosen. I'm not sure they really meant it, but they you know they 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 had these things, and that was really the the sort of in you know my push, my nudge to. To, to 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 take this place. So you're doing the the, the two things. You do, you know you've done the acting and mm. the, the law, mm. and then you're edging into the. But now now, who who is it who gives you the push? Do you think is it Max that gives you the? push? No one gave me the push. I think I think what it was because I I, I was so enjoying. I, I think you know Gary's made a really good point that it's not that dissimilar. You know I was I now found myself, you know, presenting stories in a different way. You know, so I was writing. I'd started writing plays. I was doing plays for Radio Four as well, and 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 history, which had always been my thing, you know, my real passion, was it wasn't even a step. I mean, it was just the most obvious thing. So I was working for Max, and I had an idea for a book. And bear in mind, this was two thousand and what was it, eight or nine? Anyway, it was a while ago, when it was that much easier. I think it would be really hard to break in now. Almost impossible to break in. At that point, there was still—I don't—I'm not—I don't want to talk about it like it was, you know, the great halcyon days. It wasn't even that long ago, but it was just about possible to, you know, because I'd been working with Max, and I think the publisher knew that I'd had, you know, been doing a lot of, you know, reasonable stuff with him. I had an idea for a book, and they said yes, and and I was—I was very lucky, you know. I—it's—I it, think it's good sometimes to think back, you know, when you think, oh, I've had. This has gone wrong. This has gone wrong. This is, you know, actually, there's been there's been luck along the way, and 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 that was lucky. What was Max like to work with? I mean, he's Max a character. He's a real character. Max he? was a character to work with. Um, he was, he was charming. That's that was his skill, you know. A lot of people, people have been critical of Max and unfairly, unfairly, because they, you know, he he was an oral historian, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, he's just using other people's work and just regurgitating it and picking up the money. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, a lot of what Max did were his own interviews, working with interviews that he'd actually done himself. So he started off with a book about the Busby Babes. And, you know, he'd gone... It was his idea. You know, Max, he was a, he was a, he was a bit of a chance. So he'd, he'd done a lot of things in his, in his life. Um, and he decided that he wanted to do a book about the Busby Babes, so he'd gone and interviewed people. And then he did other books about the Navy, about the Paras. Um, he'd got these interviews, and his real skill was to charm people, to really make people comfortable in his presence, so they would open up and say things that they wouldn't say to other people. And and you'll know, for goodness sake, I mean, you've done more interviews than, than, than Parkinson. You know, the, 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 the skill is to get people... To speak is to get people to open up to, 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 you know, once they're comfortable and they're saying things that they wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I, you know, I, quick sideways thing, you know, when I, when I was doing interviews for Dunkirk, you know, I, I, I found that really interesting because I was, you know, I went with the director of Dunkirk to interview people uh, who were now in their, you know, late 90s who had been interviewed before or had, you know, got their story so straight in their head down the years that there was no budging and to me the interesting thing was to knock them off that path gently I mean you, you know they're 97 years old but to 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 make them actually think for the first time in 70 years about what they were saying 
So instead of just repeating a story, to actually try and make them think back to, to what was there. And sometimes it can be a bit painful and it can be a bit awkward and they'll they'll fight you back because they no you know they've got this this is my story and I'm not why you know why are you questioning or why are you pushing and actually you know Max had that gift of being able to get people to to speak without making them feel that he was pushing them too hard without making them feel that he was you know making them uncomfortable and and he was really good at it and I often get the sense that the people who who have criticized him and people have done it in my hearing um, are either jealous, you know, I think there's a sort of jealousy that he, you know, made a career um, that was better than, than a lot of people have made. But also, I think there's a sense of possession that comes with, I think, which is understandable, you know, we all work in, you know, with the past. We do interviews with people or we, you know, we get uh, accounts from different places. We immerse ourselves in the past. We can, you know, you, I've spent a lot of lockdown not living in, I'm not even sure what this year is, but, you know, living a long time ago. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and it's very easy to start to sort of get an ownership. You, you feel that this is mine. You know, the work I've done here, the, the empathy that I have with these people, uh, you know, all of this, this is mine and nobody else you know, if you, if you question me, or if you do better than me, or, you know, if you even step on my territory, then you are taking it from me. It's not mine. It's not yours. So, Pete, when you were in the Imperial War Museum, you did these incredible, brilliant, long... I'm not just blowing smoke up you. They're fabulous. That's back in my ass. Um, I'm actually... For, for, for the tape, this is like a, like a cop show. For the tape, I am now blowing smoke up Peter's ass. The... the um, the, these amazing interviews that you do, uh, they're not yours, and they're not no. you know they 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 are for they are for everybody. They, it's it's a service you are doing. So when Max was using these interviews for his books, he wasn't taking your work. He wasn't stealing your work. There is a lot of jealousy. There is a, a, a I mean a, the, the, a couple of people who who seem to get picked on by people. Uh, Max was one, and Richard Van Emden, who's a favourite of yours, Gary. Yeah, I, he I also, like people are jealous well, what of What do they success. have in common? They're successful. Yes, they are successful. They're more successful. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, they're easy, they're easy to, to they're targets to knock down. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to say too much more. Well, I think, I think uh, no, I, I find it, I think it's nice to talk about Max and to see the good side of what he was, because he was a wonderful old boy. Um, when I met him, certainly, he, 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 but I mean, he was a journalist, wasn't he? he, he amongst he, many, he, many, 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 many. But I'm interested in that because you know the point about the skill set of a barrister, yeah. and I'm thinking, you know, maybe it was his journalism um, that that led him to be that capable. I think. His, um, I mean, his journalism sort of. I think journalism sort of came more out of the work. Um, you know, he ended up. He was the obituarist, um, military obituarist for the independent I think and a lot of that work sort of came out of the work that he you know that he was the, the book writing that he was doing and there's no doubt you know he was in the right place at the right time when those forgotten voices yes, got he going. He saw that yeah. and he, it was his I mean it's high con it's like Richard Van Emden has good ideas yeah. and then pushes them through and Max did that. Now one thing I noticed looking at you from a a fair distance yeah. is that you're very different from most of uh, the assistants that Max used to have. Uh, yes I think I know where you're going with this. Um, a lot of his assistants were in... Well, do you know, it's funny. I'm standing he means, for young women. For the tape, he means women. 
And uh, I was going to say, she's outstandingly beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so oh, sorry. <laughs> I've had my first haircut, so I'm a bit less beautiful than I was. The the um, yes, uh, his funeral was so interesting because if you if you went to I I spoke at his funeral and very, a bunch of people spoke at his funeral and all sorts of different people, but there were two groups there who were devoted to him. One group was a group of women, and the other was a group of ex-paras. Now, who, tell me, who on earth will have those two devoted groups at their funeral? I mean, he was, you know, he inspired loyalty. The paras loved him because they felt that he'd done a wonderful job, you know, in, on their book, and, you know, supporting them, even beyond the book. And the women I can't speak to. Well, no idea why they'd like him, though. He was lovely. Anyway, that's uh, so. Now, uh, did he mind when you left to write? No, your own book? that's another thing. He uh, was completely because like, some people, no. when their research assistants leave, they can be quite no, totally about. generous, totally generous, and and supportive. Not at all jealous. Not at all irritated that I was I was going off. No, he 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 was. He very encouraged kind. you. Yes, he did totally. Yeah. Now take us through your books. Here. We're we're picking on two of your books, yeah. which you've chosen to feature on. I have. Uh, 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 but uh, 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 can you uh, can you tell us a rough? You know, we'll talk about a little bit about each book as they go. So, what was your first book? Your first military history book? So the first book. So I I then went into I did oral history. I did the the um, forgotten voices of the Blitz and the Battle for Britain. So I want. So basically, I suppose what my idea was. Whereas, now that was published in two thousand six. So two thousand six was it that long? Yeah, one of the one of the dates early was a bit. I thought it was a bit later. Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, so two thousand. Okay. Well, that's just according to your website. No, no, it's probably <laughs> probably true. Um, or is it? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but did you enjoy that book? I did. I loved it. Um, I loved it because it's you know you sort of feel it, it's the difference between working for someone else and, and working for yourself. You know, it's it's it was it was exciting to do it for my, and also because his Max's. Uh, the Forgotten Voices of the Great War and the Second War were both sort of, you know, large sections which hadn't, they'd been edited, but, you know, they were sort of left there to speak for themselves. Whereas I was trying to, I had the idea, whether it's good or not, I had the idea to turn it more into a narrative history through the voices. So often the sections were shorter and they would sort of tell a story and also I was quite keen to contradict stories to have stories sort of sitting next to each other that would contradict each other to get across you mean like human beings like human beings Gary for instance often contradicts me during our podcast don't which, you which is why you're good together yeah but it's interesting because one of the things that we're exploring through the podcast is the fact that people make judgments about for example the uh, the generals in the first world war the great war um uh, without looking at their whole lives, and you know, I, I did re- read the review for for the Blitz book, and it's about people and their lives, and some of the contradictions within the same people. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's so easy to sort of pigeonhole and to decide that black is black and white is white, and never the twain shall meet. And it's nonsense, you know. We, as we know from our lives, we've all done good things and bad things and neutral things and we've behaved in all kinds of ways one person does not behave in one way throughout their existence you know we are nuanced and complex and if you don't (laughs) (laughs) gary referred to as nuanced and complex well i mean uh, this room accepted but to to a greater and lesser degree 
you know, we, we, we all are. And it just irritates me when people can't see beyond that. And, you know, we, we were talking before, you know, you, 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 you've been working on this idea of, you know, humour in the, in, in, in the Great War, or perhaps you haven't, perhaps it's a secret. But, but anyway, let's take the idea of humour in the Great War as just out of the blue. You know, sometimes when you discuss a subject like that, or when you put it into a book, because, in, you know, I've, I've, I've done that before. So, you know, talking about one subject that's interesting is, is, is for example, just taking this at random, humour in the Great War, humour in very bleak parts of history. And you can really annoy people by pointing out that there was humour in dark situations. Now, of course, we know there is. We know that. How do people get through? You know, how do people make life bearable? They make light of it. Because when you're in a dark situation, you don't stand around telling each other how dark it is. You try and you try and make light. You try and you try and go in the other direction. And yet, for some reason, sometimes when you point that out, people get annoyed. People get angry that you're somehow making light of something that's sacred. You know, you, that you yourself are, are, are somehow making fun or making, um, you're not taking a subject seriously. And that's the kind of thing that really has always bothered me. So that's the kind of thing I'm always trying to point out. That life is not linear. Life is not simple. So in one book, just to take a, a silly example, you know, I, I found this fantastic story about a group of gang of criminals during the Blitz who would... Um, is this during the secret history of the Blitz? This is secret history the of the Blitz. One, yeah. who, who would uh, steal... This was, this was a, a, a memoir, some unknown memoir written by a, a villain, you know, Second World War villain. And he talked about the fact that he had a little gang and they would go off and um, steal a van and then during the bombing they would park up and, and steal a safe. They they they'd, and because of the raid, the bombs were coming down, they were pretty much, you know, no one was going to come and apprehend them. They'd put the safe in the van, they'd take it off and they'd open it at their leisure. They were doing that one day up near um, uh, uh, London Bridge. A bomb came down nearby, blew them all up into the air, blew the safe up into the air. They started to run. One of them saw a little girl in a window as they were running. Third floor, this guy was a cat burglar. What he did was to shimmy up drains so up he went to try and get her out when he got her he was sort of trying to manhandle her out the window then along comes a fire engine there's a policeman there they put the ladder up they get them both down the policeman says to him congratulations do you want you know what and he's trying to get away as quickly as possible because the safe is still over there okay there you've got a situation where you know um, they, they've been stealing a safe they've been doing you know bad bad work and then they're saving a life, and it's perfectly possible to do both in the in, in 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 like the flash of a bomb. And that's the kind of, you know, I'm constantly trying to point out that things aren't simple. They're not straightforward. We all have it in us to 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 be all kinds of things. And if you can point that out, then you must, you know, be on the right track. Now, the, so that that was your first book, and then quickly afterwards, there's two more in the same series, The Forgotten Voices. Yes. So there's Forgotten Voices of the Somme. Yep. Uh, and then Forgotten Voices uh, of, of Dunkirk. Yes. And I think we can leave them, we'll put them to yeah, one side. They're, yeah. they're worthwhile books, but we'll yeah, put yeah. them to one side. Uh, the next one was particularly interesting to me and also starts you in some ways on your uh, 
your TV career, if you see what I mean. Well, and that was On a Wing and a Prayer. Yeah. Now, On a Wing and a Prayer was on First World War Aviation, which I'd done as well. You had. And we were, we, 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 it's quite interesting because we worked from the same source. It didn't fall out because the, the sources were all IWM sources and for everybody. Uh, but it, I thought you made an excellent job of On a Wing and reviewed it. As did you in your <laughs> wonderful book, Tumult in the Clouds, was it? That was with Nigel Steele, yeah. Uh, but, but you did make a good job of it. And that book was quite... I thought a successful book. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you've read that one, Gary. Um, uh, uh, no, I recommend, I've not read I recommend that one. it. it, it but it then ju- again, I've not read Tumult either. Oh, uh, I gave you that. I one. recommend you that. Yes. <laughs> and I noticed when I was around your house recently that it was completely unopened and <laughs> new. Now, uh, so, so tell me, what, what did, did you enjoy it? Because it, you are known I loved it. as a sort of. I'm using the word sort of, not as an insult to you, because people use it about me as well. I'm a sort of aviation historian, meaning that I'm not a real one. Uh, because, and it's often used by people who are overly possessive of the, the subject. Well, don't you find you just get, you get pigeonholed? I mean, you do, you do a book on something, and then that's what people see you as. You do, I mean, I wrote a book on that subject because it fascinated me, still does. It is great. Absolutely fascinating. Also, it's a very sort of self-contained subject. You know, and it's uh, t- to me. I mean, if you look at the, the Battle of Britain pilots and the and and the great pilots and, and the great airmen of the Second World War, these were the heroes they grew up on. You know, these were the stories they grew up on, and yet we've forgotten them nowadays. Yeah. But if you were to ask, you know, the cocky Dundas, if you ask any of the any of those Second World War airmen, you know, you know, what, what, what who were their inspirations? They were these people of the First World War, and they are fascinating because they were making it up as they went along. You know, people didn't know what planes could and couldn't do, and they created uh, the war in the air themselves. And I just found well, it well, endlessly Gary, interesting. Gary, you, you've been re- we've done podcasts on these. I was going to say found them interesting, haven't you? And we did a joint podcast. We did. We did. And you have found it interesting. Yeah, and recently we did something on uh, is it Graham Donald? Oh, oh yeah. now that's interesting. That was incredible. Well, if it's true, I'm so doubtful about it. This, this is a story of a man <laughs> who, I mean, we, when, when I first read it, I mean, my jaw just dropped. He, so basically, yeah, he, falls, he falls out of his own airplane. He's doing a loop. The airplane carries on in the loop and he falls back into his Onto air, it. Onto his airplane. I, I don't know how many hundred feet he's travelled in the, in the meantime. And... My, he became a very reputable, you know, he became an air, I forget what rank he got to, but he got pretty high in the, in the Air Force. Vice, vice Air Vice Marshal. Yeah, yeah something like so, that. So, so, you know, he's I not... I Vice Admiral, but I think I may have been wrong there. You know, he's, he's, he's not on the face of it a total chancer. On the other hand, really, what are the chances of this? I mean, it really, I mean th- there's, a, there's a similar story... Louis Strange and the machine gun. Uh, the Louis, the Louis gun, which by the way has uh, forty-seven rounds in it, uh, and uh, <laughs> and he's clinging onto that, going <laughs> before he'd been trying to get yes, it off. Yes, exactly. And, now, and then ten seconds later, he's going for fuck's sake! Exactly. Don't let this he's been, thing he's been cursing his luck that the thing won't give way, and now he's praying that it carries Please on holding. Don't get now that's. That's, but I'm, I'm not saying, I mean, I can't say. I wasn't there for either of those incidents. Those but, stories were believed at the time. Well, the Louis Strange, I, I, I absolutely, you know, that, that rings true much more than, than, the, uh, than, than the Graham Donald. I, I've said, I, I included it, but I'm, I, I gave a rider that, you know, be, be careful <laughs> about this because it's, you know. It's, I, I did believe him because, because of the detail he included in it and because, and because 
But also, even if it's not true, that his father died in 1913 and the first thing he did was just go out and buy an aircraft, <laughs> you know, 10 years after the first uh, man-powered flight. And, and you just think, what an incredible man. And, and also, it gives, it gives you an idea of, who, of what the RAF is as well, where the RAF came from. The, the, these people who were, you know, you've got the, the army and the navy, which are what they are and what they have been for a long time. And then you've got this new service... Which, you know, is not necessarily... Others don't trust. And it's, we've, it's... We've, we've loved the characters. Now, the more famous ones are cliches, but Ball, Albert Ball. Well, they're I mean, fascinating. Um, my favourite, Edward Manick. Uh, my, he's Albert mine as well. And, Mick. Uh, yes, Mick to some people. And, and then uh, James McCudden as well. I've, 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 I do waver a bit. And we were in a documentary together. We were? Uh, was that, when I, that was another time we met. That's when we met Alex Church. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, and they had actors playing him. And I remember... Standing at the bar with uh, with Mick Manock, thinking, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Manock. <laughs> but they, oh, they, said they, I'll use that noise. <laughs> I mean, there was there was there was something. So you, you were there as I well. I was there. Yeah, I was I was at the bar. I think it was at the um, Royal Aeronautical Club, wasn't it? And 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 then, I tell you, there's a curse. We've we've well. been we've been around, Pete. But but these but these people. You know, th- th- those extraordinary lives they were living, and the more successful those airmen were, really the less chance they had of making it through. They were kept at the front, and they were, you know, they were and used they wanted, to sort of... they wanted to be at the front as well. Well, they did, but then a lot of them started to go very strange. It very Well, yes. Manic in particular, uh, but... Uh, but, I mean, if you look at it, the way a lot of them well. went... You know, absolutely. Rick Doffin on the other side. I know you didn't do the other side, but... Well, I, I looked at... I mean, I've looked at them. I didn't do them in that book, but I mean, I, I have well, looked at did, them. Funny, well, you did. Well, let's you did a, a thing called Fighting the Red Baron, which That's didn't right, have yeah. me in. You didn't have me in it. That was because I, I refused to have anyone else in it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's not true. Wait, that's the, not true. You were. Uh, did you present that one then? Uh, I did that sort of sl- almost presenting thing where they, they they don't pay you very but much you, money, but you, you, you look slightly it's, off screen. It's one of your first television ones that I can remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you enjoy television? Work? I do quite enjoy it because for, you know what I was saying before to Gary is, is it's, it's storytelling. It. I enjoy it if you're able to sort of guide it enough to be able to to know that you're telling a story. You know, if if if, if, if a it's a story based with, on fact, yes, you're you're making that point, I think, because a, a lot a lot of TV producers will guide you away from that. Yeah, when I say story, I I, I mean tell the story, um, and and what the other thing that the TV will sometimes try and guide you, they'll try and sort of confuse it and and add bells and whistles and and things that have no purpose or you know modern day re- reconstructions or or the family members being t- you know it it doesn't need it if if it's if it's a really good story it's a really good story and that's all there is to it and just now, let it tell itself you appear in some appalling tv shows you've been in many good tv shows yeah, but you're also for quite famous book star group for appearing in some really great fun things that I watch like weird war history yeah, tales from the god bless dark it thing. Yeah. and normally your role is that they set up a scene where something's happened that's totally utterly ridiculous and then you appear to say well actually this is all absolute bollocks that's how well, I see it's it. so interesting it's do you know with, with, with some of these things and the te- I, you know some of these people I work with the telly people are really lovely yeah, um They'll sort of give you'll say, well, this is what we we'd like you to say, and a lot of the time, I just I can't. I'm not, you know. I've I've looked into this, and you know that's not what happened, and so so you end up either being cut, 
or they have to go with your version, but you end up saying something totally different to what they wanted you to say. So, you know, it's... Well, I've noted... I mean, that's why I've not brought it up to to denigrate you. I brought it up to say that you are in some dodgy programmes, but your contributions have always been... I've I've never been able to say... He's, he's just doing, you know, I mean, yeah. you, stand up, you stand up for uh, history, which is what you say, telling the story, not making it up. As some of but those. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so fundamental that, that it's, I mean, it shouldn't need telling. I mean, you know, it, it, what is history? History is what happened. Now, it's not always easy to find out what happened. And absolutely, you know, all of our inter- it goes back to what you're saying about the law. You know, if you, if you sit in on a, a court case, you know, witnesses will give different versions of what happened because they have, you know, different vantage points, different interpretations. They remember things differently. They have different prejudices, which they come to a, a, an event. Um, and that's to be, you know, if two, if two people give exactly the same account, then they've been colluding. I mean, you know, it's fairly straightforward. So you expect there's no, you know, the, the, the history isn't simple. That's that's to be expected. But you've got to approach it intelligently. You've got to analyze. You've got to look at, you know, like the Graham Donald story. I mean, it, it may be true. You can, all, you've got you can to go be... for a balance of probability. And we always use the analogy of a bar fight. After a bar fight, you can't. five minutes later, you can't get... If the police come in in a bar fight, they can't get a clear account of what's happened. Yeah. And if you add 50 years to it, you're yeah. going to have trouble with this. You can only get a balance of probability. And it's now, why you can write books, you know, books upon books upon books, you know, which add to a story. You know, when new information comes out, when new accounts for a release from the archive or whatever, you know, you get new interpretations and it's all valid history. But there's a big difference between that and just, you know, telling now, an untruth. One of the two books we're going to do now, the two books we're featuring. So the first of those was you you were back and forth uh, like a, no, a back and forth thing. A back and forth thing. Yes, I've been told off for saying something. Uh, research, now, you were researching Beauty and Atrocity, which is a yeah. cracking name for a book. And that's a, a history of the Troubles. And that's yeah. where, that's that's through interviews with the people. Now, yeah. this the War Museum were never able to do this because when we 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 were in, uh, during the 70s, sorry, in the 80s and 90s, we were politely informed that the War Museum interviewers were not welcome in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um and uh, so we didn't go. <laughs> Cowardly Pete, they used to call me. That was to do the First World War and Second World War interview. Never mind. Now, you're actually doing the real thing. Uh, so tell me how you did it, how you approached it. And tell us a bit about well, it. Well, I mean, I suppose my starting point for it, I, this incidentally is my favourite book. And, and it's my favourite book because I enjoyed writing it more than any other. Um, and also, it's got a place in my heart because it's by far the least successful. I mean, it's the one that sold the fewest copies, and yet it was a, a you know a real sort of passion project. I started it because I'd always been fascinated in the troubles. I'd grown up like we all did in that period where you every single day on the news in the papers, you know, there was a, 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 a shooting here, there was a bombing there, tit for tat, one side, the other side. And it seemed to me, although admittedly I was young at the time, there was never any explanation why this was happening. Who are these people? They seem to have their own momentum. What is that momentum? What, why, why are they doing it? So what I wanted to do, and this was the period, it was quite a long way post-peace, um, uh, Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, good Friday, yeah. but, the, but, but still, it was, a, it was a time when it was starting to open up. And I really wanted to go out there and find out you know, meet as many people as I could 
to just to find out their perspective. Because ultimately what I wanted to do was to write something that was unbiased, or as unbiased as you could get, because it's very rare to find something on the Troubles that isn't slanted. Uh, and so I sort of threw myself in, arrived there, and as I say in the book, you know, the first thing I got picked up at the, by a taxi driver to take me to my hotel, and I, he said, you know, he, he, um, he asked my name, I said my name, and he said, so you're a Jew. I'm not going to do the accent again. And, I, you know, I'd been, I'd been there for 20 minutes. And he started to tell me um, how Jews are going to heaven. He's a Presbyterian, so he... And, you know, I, I, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I just landed. And already I was, you know, being... And, because, and this is, yeah, I soon realised, it's a place where everybody was constantly looking at each other and trying to identify what you are. You know, there are questions that people ask you know, the, the most basic is, you know, where did you go to school? What do you know? And as soon as you know, because you can't actually tell by looking at someone what they are. That's why the Shankill butchers made mistakes and killed some of their own. You know, so so everyone wants to know who you are so that they can place you. As a as a, a, a Jew from out of the, you know, I, I was hard to place. And that was quite an advantage in a way, because um, it meant that I could sort of arrive with absolutely no agenda, even though both sides obviously had a view on Israel-Palestine, you know, the, the, the Republicans were, were um, pro-Palestinian and, and the Loyalists were pro-Israel. Because, why not? Because it's got, one has nothing to do with the other, so why shouldn't they have a strong view? So, so it was, I found myself then kind of introducing, so I, I started with nobody. And I just met people as I went along, and it's kind of dominoes. Once you, once people decide that you're trustworthy, um, or, you know, that also it was a period when people wanted to speak. You know, they, they felt that this is their chance to go on record, to be a, the first to go on record. It's now safe enough to go on record, just about, but if I'm the first and I can make history. So it, it kind of, you know, became a dominant. And I was, I was going backwards and forwards, you know, in, in Derry, London, Derry, Stroke City, in Belfast, which only has one name. And uh, I, I was able to go to both sides. And, you know, th these people would only meet each other on holiday. You know, it was only, a lot of these Catholics and Protestants would, would never meet each other. And I was going backwards and forwards and able to tell them, they're just like you, you know. They're, you know, and, 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 and they wouldn't meet each other. I mean, at the time, something like 6% of schools were, 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 were mixed. Now it's, I think, 8 You know, we haven't really moved forward very much. Um, and I found it fascinating. And what I did was to interview people who could tell me not only about what had happened over the last, you know, 40 years, but who could tell me about, you know, what actually, where it had started, you know, you know, back in, back in the, in, in the Middle Ages. And, and because history is completely alive to people, so you go into the Shankill, which is the, the sort of loyalist area of Belfast, and, you know, there's a, the, one of the pubs, there is, you, you think it's advertising the Battle of the Somme. I mean, it's, you know, outside, you know, you, there are Union flags, everything is about the Somme, everything's about the Ulster Division. And you realize, and then on the other side, you know, the 1916 rebels have, uh, have just risen. All of this history is as real to these people as something that's happened that morning. And it's very, it's actually, you know, you find yourself quite seduced by it, actually. You, be, you, you begin to be quite, well, you you almost become quite jealous of people who have such a sense of identity. You know, when you grow up here, and you you know, we grew up in a time actually 
before identity politics really took hold, which is now, you know, very much a thing, where, you know, we were encouraged to think that, you know, other people, you know, we, we should listen to everyone else's opinion out there. It's my way or the highway. And, you know, you, you, you know, everything is seen from through the perspective of history and through the perspective of identity, of who I am, and more importantly, who I am not. And it was fascinating to really immerse myself in that, to see who these people were, and to get them to tell me not only about their own experiences of the last 40 years, but of the last hundreds of years. So I was able to meet, you know, in Derry, London, Derry, I was able to meet um, uh, 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 an Anglo-Irish landowner, a fantastic man, who was able to tell me about the time that Martin McGuinness held a gun to his head, but he was also able to tell me about two of his family members who had, you know, been sort of heroes during the Siege of Derry. So I was able to tell the story of the Siege of Derry through him and his family. You know, another man uh, uh, whose ancestor, he was a Protestant, but his ancestor had been one of the United Irishmen who had been uh, uh, pro, you, you know, who, who, who had actually, um, even though he was a Protestant, had been very much for, you know, pro-Catholic, pro sort of, you know, equal rights, pro-Irish um, independence. And, uh, and he would actually gone out to France uh, where he tried to get Robespierre to invade. Um, uh, so, you know, he, he, I was able to get these fascinating stories through these people. I was able to tell the past, the distant past and the recent past. And I was able to get a real sense. And I was able also to meet people who, you know, youngsters who were sort of on the edges at the time of the real IRA. Um, I, was, you know, I met a lot of victims because you realise that the number, it's a very small place in Northern Ireland, the number of people who have been affected, either personally, who have seen something, who had family members, who, I mean, it's enormous. You know, the numbers of people, you know, um, these are the, the sort of silent people who didn't dare speak. Um, you know, uh, and you gave them a voice. And you tried voice. to give them a voice, but then also you, you know, to bring it right up to date. You know, I wanted to, you know, to talk to these people on the edges, people who were living in 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 the bog side of, of Derry, who were very angry at the fact that peace had been made because they felt that the McGuinnesses and the Adams had had their fun, they'd had their time, and once you took the fight, that you know, the pride, if you like, out of these communities, they were nothing but you know, run-down communities. And, and these, pe- these young people wanted to keep the fight going because, you know, they, they, they felt that they didn't have what their, the previous generation had had. So it was trying to see it from as many angles as possible. How, how far up the hierarchies did you get? I tried actually... Far, I mean, I did meet, you know, I met, I met Ian Paisley. He was hilarious. Um, he, you know, he, he that, what's that expression? He spoke to me as though I was a public meeting. I, he had now... He'd, he'd, had, he'd, he'd had his... He'd had, he'd had his epiphany and he was now, I met him at a St. Patrick's, if you can believe this, a St. Patrick's Day breakfast where he was speaking alongside a, a nun, Sister Breeze. If you can imagine Paisley standing up, a nun speaking and then Paisley speaking. And I, I, I was introduced to Paisley. And, you know, what do you say? Where do you begin? So I, I noticed that everyone else had an Ulster fry and he was just having porridge. And I said, you know, so you're having a different breakfast to everyone else. He said, he said, uh, he said, um, Ah, they gave me porridge, but they wouldn't give me any cream. And he just yelled it in my face. And I just, I just thought, you know, this was the, this was Alex Ferguson, the hairdryer from Ian Paisley. And 
I felt quite honoured that I then spoke. But you to couldn't him. interview him. Well, I could have interviewed him, but do you know, in a way, the book wasn't about Jerry Adams like it, and Ian Paisley. I, it was more about ordinary people or the foot soldiers. So not the McGuinnesses. Well, I did interview um, Patrick McGee, who was the Brighton bomber, who was, if you like, the sort of the ultimate foot soldier. Um, you know, there, this was the man who planted the bomb that you know, first of all, showed the establishment that the IRA were capable of more than tit-for-tat murders. And so I think really shook up the Troubles. Because if you read the, you know, there's a the, the, um, the, the sort of Bible of the Troubles that shows every single murder. And it is, you know, this side, that side, this side, that side, police, you know. Um, and, and, and that was, uh, you know, really, really sort of taking it out of that tit-for-tat um, pattern, but it was also, you know, if he'd succeeded, you know, it was part of the arm light in one hand, ballot box in the other strategy. And yet, if he had succeeded, if he'd killed the cabinet, I mean, there wouldn't have been peace in in Northern. I mean, it, you know, for for generations to come. So, it it was very very interesting. And also, you know, one interesting thing with Patrick McGee, you know, he drew a big distinction. He was obviously really, I mean, he was properly tortured by by what he had done. It was really interesting. And, he, you know, he goes around with Joe Berry, who's the daughter of one of his victims, Sir Anthony Berry. And, and they do a sort of dance around each other where they try, you know, she tries to get him to apologise. And, 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 um, and she's, she's an extraordinary woman. And he's a very interesting man. And he, you know, he, he, he apologises for the fact that it's her father that he's killed, but he won't apologise for planting the bomb because he sees it as an act of war. But then... He also sees any, you know, subs- anything that's happening now, he sees as not valid, whereas what he did was completely valid. And yet, as other people point out, you know, what the IRA was aiming for was to get the British off Irish soil. And the British are still, perhaps not the soldiers, but the, you know, the British are still on Irish soil. So what, what's changed? So, it, you know, it, anyway, it's, I found that book utterly fascinating to do. Did you ever feel personally threatened or or nervous or or uh, in danger uh, funnily enough yes but only through my own stupidity um not i wouldn't say in danger exactly but i was on my own out there uh and um i was sort of dealing with you know subjects that were that were still warm and there was still you know there are still people you know there's still a big sort of spy network out there there are people reporting on others out there to this day don't you know um, and I was asking questions and, you know, we know from, you know, a number of examples what happens to English people asking too many questions in pubs in, in Northern Ireland. And um, and I, I was once in a Republican community in Derry and I was asking about a particular local figure and whether, you know, there was any suspicion that that person was a, an informer. I know. That's and a stupid it, question. It was extraordinary. And, you know, I'd got a little overconfident, basically. Yeah. And um, and, and we'd all been getting on. We'd all been laughing. And suddenly there was just silence in the room. And one person just looked at me and said, said three times, be careful. And I was after that. Now, the last book, we're going to talk about the secret history, but I've been talking too much. So, Gary, can you take over and perhaps question a little bit about because Because it's your town. Uh, the Secret History of the Blitz, uh, it, it, it's about the whole of the country. Yes. Uh, but I reviewed it, so I've sort of had my say about this, this, this book. Uh, Gary, what do you want to ask him about the Secret History of the Blitz? Well, well you know, 
What's it about? Well, it's about... There was this <laughs> period... Gary, you never failed to let me down. <laughs> Britain went to, to war in, in, at the end of the 1930s. And there was this period called the Blitz. And the Germans mounted this, this series of bombing raids. And... Uh, He's very patient. <laughs> He's very patient. And what I wanted to do with this book was to talk about not so much that I mean I do talk about the raids and I talk you know about the the the, the, the from that that perspective but mainly what I wanted to do really was um, a social history with an element of political history as well uh, of that period to try to sort of paint a picture of what life was was actually like um, and and how that period affected us in the longer term as well and again, this was a real pleasure to write this book. It was just enjoyable. And this Ooh. one sold better as well. This one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is. Yeah, this one, this one did well. Um, and uh, but uh, it's it, and also it got it got a certain amount of, of notice. And I was pleased because I also I found it, you never quite know where stories are going to come from. And so, for example, there was one story in this one. I'd been doing some private work for someone else, you know, to make a bit of money. And this was a, a, like a, you know, a research into someone's uh, this nice lady, her much older husband, who it turned out had been an oil inspector in Sherwood Forest in uh, during the war, which I was thinking, what? What, what, is, what does that even mean? And what I discovered was that there had been an oil industry in Sherwood Forest, this area called Ekring. And basically, obviously, you know, the country was, was was trying to get by as best it could and they knew that there were certain deposits of oil, funnily enough, really high-grade oil, um, and they started to, to, to drill uh, at the beginning of the war. What they didn't have were people who could drill it properly, so they actually went out and got Americans over, people from Texas and Oklahoma, all these real sort of big, tough... Oil drills. Yeah. And they came over dressed like that. They came over in cowboy hats and jeans. And 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 they arrived. They stayed in a they lived in a monastery. Um and I mean already you can see, I mean you can you can see the, the, the yeah. film version. And 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 they were so they had there had to be a cover story because Will it be sex. this was all kind yeah, don't worry, Pete, you can write that bit. And and there had to be a cover story that they were making a the cover story was they were making a film. You know, it's all a load of nonsense. And they came in every day and, um, and, and they drilled for this incredibly high grade of oil. And they got a lot of, when I say a lot, it didn't solve the country's oil problem. But the fact was they got a reasonable amount out of the ground um, and, 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 it, and it did help. And it was such high grade that they were able to use it for, you know, for the, for the high octane stuff. Um, and, and so that's the kind of, you know, in, in, in a story of where, where the country was having to, Sort of cut its cloth and and you know find new ways of existing and everyone was finding new ways of getting by. So was the country, you know, you know they were actually finding, you know, what people were, were searching their larder for things that they wouldn't normally eat and you know dig growing things they wouldn't normally eat and um, so the country was looking, you know, for and and for for places that you wouldn't normally find oil and 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 so th these were the sorts of unusual. This is what I'm always trying to do, I suppose. To find unusual things, I don't. There's no point in telling the story that's been told before. There's just no point. It's sort of insulting to readers, and it's it's a waste of everyone's time. So if you can find the new stuff, new ways of looking at stuff, then 
you know, that, and, and, and with that book, I think even when I was telling stories that had been covered before, you know, the crime and the sex had all been covered before, I was trying to find new avenues, new ways of telling it. Um, and I think with that one, you know, I, w I was pleased with it. I'm doing, you know, a book I'm writing now. Again, trying to do, do the same thing, trying to find ways of telling, telling the story that haven't been done before. But anyway, that, no, but that Blitz book, I was very, I was very, very pleased with that. Did you mention, mention earlier that your, your father was just a bit too young yeah. for the second world? My stepmother um, grew up in Brimsdown uh, near the uh, Enfield Small Arms Factory. So she was a, a young girl during the Blitz. And she would often talk about it. And the children um, are often not represented. When people talk about, you know, military history, did you manage to get the stories of the children yeah. out there through the book? Well, funnily enough, you know, in a way it was sort of easier because they were the ones who were still alive. You know, so, um, so you know, there the, the were plenty of, of you know, the, the, I mean, you know, at the moment, it's funny, I, 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 I've just found there's a, an archive of, of Bevan boys, for example. You know, they're people who are rarely, rarely covered. I'm not saying they haven't been. But, you know, there are a lot of areas that still to this day, you know, that people sort of gloss over and actually are fascinating and, 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 and deserve to be looked at much closer than they have been. Um, so, yes, I did. I, I made a big point of, of talking to people who were younger to try and get their perspectives because of course you know evacuation evacuation is, is, is was a fascinating subject because you know if you think about the difference between you know nowadays when they're all sort of background checks before anybody is put in anyone else's care and back then anyone was thrown anywhere now you know for the most part and you get lots and lots of stories of people who were very happily evacuated who stayed in contact with the families and were you know and, and and also saw a different side of life. You know, a lot of sort of, you know, East End kids would be sent out to the country and have no idea that milk would come from cows. Or, you know, they would just be astonished. Oh. And, and it would be, and work the other way around as well. You know, the, you know they Cows be, come from cows milk. Cows from milk. Yeah, cows come from milk. And you, you should see that process happening. It's something to watch. And, and the, I'm um, learning. And so, uh, so, so, you know, the, the, it, it, it was... Interesting to see that side, but then you also had some incredibly unhappy stories of people. You know, I remember finding, you know, when you trawl the, the local papers and just, you know, this one story I found, this tragic little story of a, of a, um, a child who was put with two women and the child had gone into the, the larder and taken a biscuit and they had beaten him to kingdom come and he was four years old. And you had this in the, in the local paper the magistrate speaking, telling his mother, who'd come to, to pick him up, saying, I, you know, I want you to treat him with great love so that he will forget what he's been put through in this horrible experience. And suddenly the years roll away and you're, you're absolutely brought. And of course, it's not all one and it's not all the other, you know, because people are people. But when you can actually... You know, when you've, when you can do enough research, do enough work, immerse yourself enough, not to own the period, but to get a sense of the complexity and the nuance. Uh, one of the things I found most interesting is you look at how there isn't one response to, to yeah. the, 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 the whole thing. That it's a, it's a nuanced, it's, it's that people don't react the same way. It's a part of the theme you've been talking about throughout this interview, yeah. isn't it? And, and that especially comes across. People don't respond to the blitz, to the situation in the same way, do they? They've got 
different ways of doing of course they do i mean you know but everybody it, i mean if you, and of course if you're interviewing people you know if you if you interview somebody whose house was destroyed or who was wounded or whose family member was killed they will remember the blitz as the most horrific period imaginable and when you're interviewing them you don't then say to them oh but wasn't it you know lots of good things you know that's their experience and they wouldn't recognize another experience but there were untold other experiences and the blitz was a time of for some people of incredible liberation you know where because it was a time of such high intensity and you know, the temperature of the, the country rose and people were sort of jolted out of their habits out of their patterns and they, they started you know in, in the most basic ways so you know people who you know um, might be dead tomorrow would start doing things they'd never done before in very you know women might go into pubs on their own or people might you know start having sexual liaisons with each other who oh, would never yeah. have dared to do it in other circumstances you know there was a big sort of you know quentin crisp described the period as you know london as a big double bed for i think for homosexual a lot of a lot of gay people you know it was a time of incredible freedom that the government then spent the post-war period nailing back into place and I think, you know, the, the Marriage Guidance Council, which came into place after the, after the war again, was an effort to sort of nail all that freedom back into place. Because, you know, you talk to people. I remember talking to one woman who told me about, actually wasn't her, told me about her mother. And this again was very telling. She said um, that her mother had been, her father was away um, in the forces. The mother was in London. Uh, and a man had come down, a Scottish man who was married, had come down from Scotland with a, one of the ministries and was in London. And her mother and that man had started a relationship. It was the sort of thing that was known as a wartime marriage. So they didn't see themselves as, you know, this is infidelity. They were together for, for the war, for the duration of the war. It's quite, it was perfectly well understood that when the war came to an end, they would come to an end and they would go back to their previous existences, their previous partners. But for this period, it suited them both to have this relationship. And I, I said in the book, uh, you know, that this, in, in a way, it was sort of, you know, for the duration, sort of sexual equivalent of powdered egg. It was, it was you know, uh, it was for the time and the place. And that's the sort of story that once you sort of get down into the, the nuance of it, you begin to realize that people were behaving as people. And this is all understandable. And, it, you know, it would be very easy at the time to, oh, look at Mrs. Foster. Oh, look at the fancy man who's come around. Well, these are people being people. And, you know, they, uh, we have, in many ways, we've changed over the last hundred years. You know, our expectations of life have changed. And, um, but but in 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 most ways we haven't. You know we are still the same sorts of people. You know we still our reactions, our hopes, our fears. You know we are still humans. And it's the exciting thing is to go back in time, and find you know what make what 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 identify what, what brings us close to the people who went before us and and the way we can identify with them. And the more stories like that I found, the more I felt I was sort of creating a landscape, which was just fascinating. Yeah, I find that really shocking even now. Scottish. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's well, stuck with the daughter. I'm surprised you don't change your underwear. So, <laughs> having, I mean, just heard that impact. Now, uh, we're, we've got to start moving to the end now, really, because uh, th- this has been great. But uh, you, you're, we're, in a way, it's, it's typical of us that we're not talked about your one of your biggest successes, which is the Dunkirk book and, and your involvement with the Dunkirk film. Uh, and I think a lot of people will know about your very your great success. Though. Well, I mean, it, it's a success, but I mean, you know, the, the, the book did very well, but let's face it, I mean, it was on the, it was on the back of the film. Um, but it was a really, really, I was very, again, that's another piece of luck. You know, I was, I was lucky to, 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 um, to, to be asked to do that. Um, Christopher Nolan was incredibly enjoyable to work with. It was, a, I was treated really, really well. And also I was able to have a reasonable, input into it you know there were things that you know so for example the beginning of the film I, I've already said you know we went and we interviewed lots of veterans so so one veteran you know who's, who'd been a beach master talked about the fact that people would just walk out and swim away and and Chris and Alan put that straight into the film um, the uh, you the beginning when when you see the leaflets floating down I mean I you know the first time I met I told him about that and he realized that that would be a really interesting way to sort of introduce the audience to it. You know, if you could see a map and you could see, you know, we are here, they are here, then you don't need a load of dialogue, you know, clunky dialogue. People say, well, we're, we're over here. Do you know where the, where the Jerry's are? You, know, you wouldn't need that. It was just a, a shortcut. to. So, so there were a lot of things like that. And uh, yeah, I was, it, it was, it was a sort of a, a funny little interlude in life, which was. Do you mind going, because you've, it, I mean, will you ever have that success again? I mean, because some some people, no people can ruin their lives by having a success. Oh God! And then, I mean, in, in the world of pop, you have a, it wasn't a hit that, single yeah. in 1972, and then you spend your rest of your life trying to re- recreate it. Yeah, it didn't turn me into Elvis <laughs> Stardust. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was great fun, but it was, I mean, you know, I, I was aware at the time that this is this is kind of a a golden opportunity. It's a novelty single as opposed to a. <laughs> a you know. ah, your greatest hit is a novelty single. Fantastic. But it, but it was, but but still a really lucky one to get. And um, you know, I, I I really really enjoyed the experience. And yeah, that's all I can say, really. Now, what are you working on now? I mean, we're, we're, I mean, to be honest, your career is such that we're still missing out lots of things you've done. There's a couple more books and and things, but but what are you doing now? If you can talk about it, and I do appreciate that we, sometimes we don't say what we're well, working. Well, no, I'm working on. Well, I've been, I've been working on a, a book about. Well, I'm sort of kind of taking the, it on from Dunkirk to North Africa in the Second World War, but with a focus on the special relationship, and this was the the birth of the special relationship, really. I mean, it was the Americans and the Brits working together for the for the first time, you know, properly, not altogether successfully, and uh, and so that's that's and I'm really enjoying it actually. Have you got a snappy title for it? I don't. I don't have any title at all. Um, I, uh, you know, beauty and atrocity. I, I really shot my bolt with that one. Yes. <laughs> the, the, um, oh dear. Might use it again. The the um, but the the uh, but it's it's also been you know as we all know. It's been such a strange period this last year because I haven't been able to get into any archives and haven't been. So you've been. I've been sort of writing and trying to plan on the basis of what I hope I find <laughs> rather than what. So so you know it, that's fine. I, you know uh, I, I've been I've been enjoying it, and I've also been doing a project with the RAF Museum, which is really. Been oh, very close to here. 
very close to here. It's a wonderful place. Oh, sorry, I'm in East Finchley. I probably didn't tell people that. Yeah. Yeah. So Hendon. Yes. It is very. And and again for the tape, um, Pete's pointing out of the window. The the um, the uh, I've been doing a project called Hidden Heroes, and it's about um, Jewish people in the Royal Air Force during the war, and it's a really interesting project because because of the figures involved. I mean, something like, in fact, more than 20,000 Jewish people uh, were in the RAF during the war, which is 6% wow. of the entire Jewish population. Not 6% of young Jews or young men, 6% of the whole population. And um, we, we've discovered that Gary is uh, part Jewish, so uh, this will have particular resonance for your mother's side of the family. But the... But the um, it, it, it's... It kind of, I, I think there's been a sort of idea down the years that you know Jews were the victims of the war. It's quite understandable where that came from, but it hasn't. It, it, it sort of precluded any discussion of the fact that Jews fought back. And once you start going into these stories, uh, you start getting a sense of, of what Jews, you know, Jewish people actually did. And maybe just leave you with one story because it's so astonishing. I, I, th th there was a man called uh, Peter Stevens, who had come over to Britain from Germany um, in the early 30s. His, basically, his mother had sent him over when she'd seen the writing on the wall. Young Jewish guy named Georg Hein in those days. Come here and he'd been raised by a, a family here and then he'd gone to... Um, he'd started at, uh, at LSE and had basically gone off the rails and you know committed a couple of frauds and gone to prison. And in 1939, when they were emptying the prisons, they got rid of him and they told him to report immediately as an enemy alien. And Georg Hein did no such thing. What Georg Hein did instead, you remember, they'd been at school with a boy called Peter Stevens, who had died while he was at school, gone, found his grave, got his details, went, got his birth certificate, and then showed up at the RAF recruitment office posing as Peter Stevens. He then joined, um, joined up. Joined the RAF, he became first a navigator, then a pilot on Hamden's. He was flying um, uh, missions over, over Germany. At the same time, the Home Office were looking for him. and Or they were looking for Georg Hein. And they were getting closer and closer and closer. And they were about to nab him when he was shot down. And so he had... The one thing he mustn't do was give away the fact. Because if you can imagine, being a, being a German Jew... Flying with the RAF, you can imagine what the what the results would have been when the Gestapo got hold of you. So he uh, was, was Peter Stevens, as as far as the, the Germans were concerned. He'd been in London, in Britain, long enough to have, you know, uh, an English accent, and he took part in various in various prison camps. Took part in various took part in the in the Wooden Horse escape. Um, took tangentially in the, in, the, in the Great Escape, and in, he tried at one camp to, to get away. We he, he had a shower with the guards. And actually tried to, to sort of file out with the guard to get out that way. You'd think, I'm not going to go into detail, but as, as a Jewish man, you, there might be a difference there between him and the, the German guy. Anyway, he got to the end of the war, he was repatriated, and the RAF had to decide what to do with this person. You know, who is he? Is he, is he a lawbreaker or is he a hero? And what they did, they promoted him to squadron leader, they allowed him to keep the name Peter Stevens, and then something fairly grey happened. I think he was did something with MI6, which I haven't got to the bottom of. But anyway, he then went out to Canada after the war, married a Catholic woman, 
never told her he was Jewish, so his whole past remained a secret. Had two children, and when he died, his son, Mark, always thought there was something funny about Dad, and started looking at the story and uncovered all of this, and found out his father was not at all. In fact, his father's sister had come to stay with them, and he, had, the father had said to, Peter Stevens had said to the sister, just, you know, don't tell them who you are. Don't, don't say you're my sister. So, and what I love about that story is it's, again, it's nuanced. You know, you've got this man who wasn't, you know, he was a hero, but he also, my goodness, had feet of clay. And that's what life is, you know? And, and that's, anyway, that's a story. <laughs> feet of clay. That, that is fantastic. Look, uh, we, we have to draw it to a close now. I can't, I can't wait to, to see those books, and perhaps your publisher will send me a copy, and Gary a copy, although... I think, he, one, I think one will have to do between well, you. Yes, well, I'll, I'll pass it on for you to colour in later, Gary. And uh, I'd just like to say thank you to, uh, to Josh Levine, who has been, who's done a fantastic interviewer. Uh, if you wanted to buy his books, you'll find him under Joshua, because that's his Sunday name, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, Unless you're Jewish, in which case it's my Saturday name. Oh. <laughs> you obviously saw my notes. Got me. And of course, we now know that Gary... I think that's oh, perfect. you walked into that. Oh, walked Gary, straight. who is a quarter... Uh, are you a quarter now? What do you quarter your... Yeah, you're a quarter. So, you're, so your left leg is Jewish. I thought I recognised it. It's short well, of my right leg. Thank you very much, Josh. It's been absolutely great. And uh, and uh, as Gary Orb would say, do you like a chatter? I do. Do you like a natter? I do. Well, you'll enjoy chatter natter. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?